This is Rooted Recovery Stories, and I'm Patrick Custer. So very excited and happy to be here with you all today. And my special guest here in the Hollywood Hills of California, David Hernandez. Hello. You are in Hollywood. I'm. You're far from home. I am far from home. <laughs> the Southern boy is uh, out of his element. We love Southern boys. They're polite. <laughs> They're nice. It's a breath of fresh air in this otherwise jaded city. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to talk about jaded city, jaded things, jaded behavior. Oh my God. So many different things today. I can't wait to, to dive deep into all of it. Oh Lord. Yeah. I'm scared. I'm nervous. Good. Because life has been lifing, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to set the stage. First of all, for those of you who don't know, um, David is, uh, I would say, kind of came on the scene where many people might have uh, found him from uh, American Idol back in season seven. Season seven, 2008. Yeah. 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 Time flies. It's crazy. I'm curious what that, like, if you were to just describe what that experience was like for you, just how did you, did you know going into it that you, did you think for sure you were going to get it or was no, it all? Not at all. Not at all. It was pure and utter chaos. I had no idea what was going on. Um, I had just gotten dropped from my record label, the story of a million different artists out there. Oh, nice. And my I manager, always heard that they didn't, if you had had a record deal, they wouldn't, they wouldn't mess with you. season was filled with people that had previous record deals. Really? So that's a myth. Yeah, totally. Okay. And even more so now they like actually scout people out that are like already have a following because social media. Um, but no, I had just gotten dropped from my label. My manager at the time was like, you should audition for American Idol. And I was like, ugh, like I'd seen the show, but I thought it was like really gimmicky. And I, you know, I don't know. I just, the, 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 the struggling artist in me just really wanted, I was a masochist. So I was like, I just need to go through the pain. And like, this was just like a fast track. So I don't know. I, I reluctantly did it. I, um, drove out with my best friend to San Diego. I waited in a line for like 17 hours at Qualcomm stadium. And I just kept making it 17 hours, 17 hours. We would take turns to go nap in the car. Um, I remember being broke. I had no job. I barely had money for gas. Yeah. I was just, and I hadn't, you know, the label obviously dropped me. So I wasn't getting my, mm. my stipend anymore. Um, so I was like, screw it. Let's just see what happens. And I just kept making it and making it. And I'm like, are you sure you want this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and they kept putting me through and I just, I, you know, the rest is kind of history there, but it, but it was like boot camp for singers. I was definitely way in over my head. What do you mean by that? When you were way in over your head? I, well, I had no idea about the professionalism that would be required to be on television uh -huh. and the hours and the lack of sleep. And, you know, I grew up, I'm a boy that grew up singing with like cover bands. And mm -hmm. when, since I was 17, they'd sneak me in the back door and I'd get up there and, you know, we would, we'd be drinking and we'd have a good time and then you'd go home and whatever. But this was like actual work. And I think I got, I just got really serious really quick about it. Cause I was like, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. Like I have to, I have to buckle down and like be an adult. And so that was just like, I didn't realize that I didn't, I didn't understand the assignment <laughs> initially, yeah. you know what I mean? And then, and then just, it kept going and going and I would, I sang with Brian Adams. I sang with Donna Summer with George Michael, you know? And I remember the first time when in rehearsal with Brian Adams, he was like, your voice is gorgeous. Like, where do you get that tone? And it's Brian Adams. Like, right. Where do you get your tone? You yeah. know? So that was, I, I, it, it's a reality check really quick of the space that I was occupying and what I was sent here to do. And I had to deliver. So mm -hmm. in that aspect, I felt like I was over my head, but your boy got it real quick though. He sure did snap into it. 
That's good. Yeah. Not everybody could pull it. <laughs> yeah, pull it I mean, I come from a really strong, uh, independent mother who raised me. So, you know, it's either sink or swim. There wasn't anybody that was going to like guide us through this life. So you got to do it yourself. Mm. Yeah. What? So when you say your mother raised you from a sink or swim perspective, yeah. what's the, what's the history behind that? Like why? Well, she, you know, my mom, uh, and we've taught, we've talked about me talking about this and she's totally okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, she came from a really tumultuous childhood. You know, there was a lot of abuse. Um, and you know, as she got older, she had me when she was 17, pregnant when she was 16. Um, and so it was like a kid raising a kid. And so she suffered through her addictions and through a lot of loneliness and a lot of childhood trauma that really never really got unpacked until later. So she was just doing the best she could with what she had, but there was nobody that was going to save her. So she worked multiple jobs to take care of me. I was a latchkey kid, um, and my little sister. So, you know, when I say sink or swim, like it literally was that, like there wasn't a whole lot of help. We had some government assistance. Um, but she, you know, she was the one that was driving this train with two, you know, little kids. So, you know, what, what are you going to do? What did a, what did addiction look like in your household growing up? I, um, well, I come from a long line of addicts. Mm-hmm. Um, some that still probably won't admit that they're addicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of alcoholism in my family, like a lot. Um, and my mother had, um, some drug addictions. She, you know, specifically crystal meth for a long time. Um, almost 20 years, uh, and wow. I never knew about it I, because she was functioning. You know, she was working all these jobs. And in retrospect, there were signs, but I was seven or eight. Like I didn't. A 20-year crystal meth addiction. Years, High yeah. High functioning is rare, especially when it doesn't end in death. Yeah, it was on and off for her. You know, she would yeah. kick it. And then, you know, I'm so glad that she's finally been sober for a very long time. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't realize any of that until later, you know, there was one particular incident where I was, um, off in college, but I had came home for a little while. My grandmother called me and my mom was close to death and my grandmother had to call the cops and break down the door. And there was a whole thing that happened. Um, and at at that moment I realized, oh my God, like that's when my grandma came clean to me and told me about her addiction and stuff like that. And your gra- my grandmother told me about my mom. Oh, yeah. So you didn't know. I had no idea. I mean, I had heard like rumors through like my, my father and my stepmom that things might have been happening. Um, you know, but I was a kid at the time. And so I didn't really pay attention. I thought it was all just lies cause they didn't like each other. Yeah. Um, but that was, that solidified my, my sort of knowledge and like, Oh my God, this is an actual problem. And she was your primary caregiver, right? Yeah. 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 Well up until a certain age when I left and I moved in with my dad and my stepmom and my, you know, her son and then my soon to be other little sister. Gotcha. It's a long story, yeah. but like basically I left the house when I was around. I, I don't know. We, we, would probably argue about what age I was, but I want to say somewhere around like seven or eight is when I moved in with my dad. Cause mm-hmm. that family life looked a lot better. It was, um, it was a family like a, you know, there was my brother and then my dad and his wife and my mom was still single. So like at that particular time, it felt like very unsteady and like, mm, like a unsolid ground for me. Like I didn't sure. feel, I mean, like I said, I was a lot. She kid. my mom was doing the best she could, but like this grass looked greener over here to sure. me with my dad. Uh, turned out to not be that. Uh, it was actually a really uh, 
mentally and physically abusive household, particularly from my stepmom. Mm. My dad was a truck driver, always on the road. I've actually never talked about this in an interview before. So I'm like nervous a little, but I think it's, it's my truth. But um, yeah, it was, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of mental abuse in that household. My dad was kind of gone, not kind of, but he was gone on the road all the time. And so, yeah, that was sort of, and then I was 17 and I finally got a full ride to college and I, and I was out, I was done. It makes sense that you would leave an abusive environment, but I really want to know what, how you would describe now what the abuse looked and felt like. The abuse was, I mean, it was definitely physical, but more so mental. The physical part of it, you know, there'd be slapping, particularly across the face or mm -hmm. pushing. Um, but m most of it that really stuck with me was the, was the verbal and emotional abuse. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of name calling, a lot of like berating my mother's name in front of me, mm -hmm. you know. Um, oh God, there's so many things that I remember that are so vivid that... Um, I hate even like drudging up, but it was just, it was, it was to make you feel small, to right. make you feel small be, and to make someone else feel powerful. And that's, it was a manipulation. It was a lot of gaslighting um, and just lies. Like, you know, my dad would come home from off the road and he would just be fed all these lies from my stepmom about things that we did. And we were such good kids. Like mm -hmm. we, I mean, we didn't, we weren't even allowed to go out or have friends. Like when the sun went down, we were not able to be at the neighbor's house or be out in the front yard. Like it was, and we did, we did crazy chores. Like every day we had to dust the whole house, mm -hmm. which is crazy. I'm like eight, nine years old. Right. Like all the way into my teens, that was the thing. So I guess I learned how to clean, <laughs> but yeah, it was just, it was a lot of just mental and verbal abuse growing up. So what I'm hearing from you is that you learned to find safety in making yourself small. I mean, I think I found safety in just trying to stay out of the way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And if that's making myself small, sure. I mean, I dove a lot into music and like fantasies and I love just being alone and watching like Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. and like pretending that I one day could be a vampire slayer and I, you know I just I, whatever form of escapism I could have as a little kid that's that's what I took mm. I was never like the other kids either like I just didn't want to I didn't want to play sports I wanted to I wanted to be in choir I wanted to play the flute I wanted to play the clarinet the trumpet I tried it I tried it all I just was such a creative from a young young age and that and that also didn't really gel well in my household because you know my brother played sports and um the kids at school were mean you know kids can be really really mean yeah especially and super honest um and it's it you know it tears away at you so yeah i shrunk myself a lot for sure yeah more so when i moved in with my dad and and that side of the family because my mom always encouraged me to just be exactly who i was she mm -hmm. funny story uh, christmases i i loved barbies and instead of embarrassing me uh -huh. in front of the family, right. everybody would leave the house after they came over and she would hand me my real presents like after they left. And it would oh be gosh. like a Barbie like uh, van or like, oh, I'm tearing up right now. She, she did all that really great stuff. And like, um, she always encouraged me to like be who I was. And that was uh, really important, I think. Jeez. Help. <laughs> yeah sorry so. i just thought like the i needed to take a pause for a second the the level of like I, the safety that knowing that you 
just this, the joy that she needed to provide for you yeah. was only going to be able to be had. in you know, a moment where certain people weren't around, like, yeah, even in the midst of, um, dysfunctional behavior, you know, right? Like yeah. she was doing the best she could with what she had and it still made an impact on you Yeah, in a positive yeah. way. And I think that that lesson was always gonna play out in my life, you know? She was always mm -hmm. gonna be and still is to this day like my safe haven, you know? Even through addictions and stuff like right. that, I, I mean, I, she can relate, I can relate to her, you know? These are things that we can share without shame with each other and I think that's like such a beautiful relationship that we've been able to cultivate over my entire life and hers. Um, a really funny story to bring up the mood though is, is, yes. is Halloween one year. I wanted to be a bumblebee and how old were you? Oh my God. I forget. Roughly. It had to be like, it had to be like seven yeah. maybe or something. I mean, all the kids were dressed up as like GI Joes and like superheroes and I wanted to be a fucking bumblebee. Love it. And so she bought me the bumblebee outfit with like the yellow tights and it was the most absurd thing for like a little six, six, six seven year old boy to, to dress up as. And I got made fun of so hard at school. Like uh -huh. it was, it was like the worst experience. But when I came home, she was like, you're beautiful and you can be whoever you want to be in this life. And still to this day, she just is that. So that's special for sure. This podcast is brought to you by Promises Behavioral Health. If you or a loved one are struggling with trauma, addiction, or mental health, we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step. Call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help. So another interesting costume was um, when I first started off musical theater, my grandpa worked as a janitor for like a strip mall and he knew that I love singing so he took me to this audition he's like i don't know what the musical is but just sing a song and i sang i will always love you mm -hmm. by whitney houston which was was a bold choice yeah i got the part and um i loved it i loved everything from like the makeup to the set pieces to like the fog machine all that stuff yeah um and i remember like my dad coming to the first to the first show and i had a full beat on mm -hmm. like i had and i did it myself mm -hmm. like my mom bought the makeup but i like was back there and like i felt like I just felt like Judy Garland and there's the beat in my face. I had the red lipstick too. Yeah. Um, and I performed and then we got off stage. My dad had come to see it and I'll, I'll never forget. He was, he like wiped my face and he was like, no son of mine's going to wear makeup. And I was like, Oh, like I felt like awful. Now fast forward. My dad's incredible. He loves everything about me. He loves uh -huh. drag Queens. He loves the queer community, everything, but just back in that sort of conditioned way of believing right. like that wasn't what a boy was supposed to wear. So that, that stuck with me. And even, even, even till today, like when I, when I put on like BB cream or makeup or something, I'm always like conscious of like, does it look like I have a lot of makeup on? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I was having a conversation the other day with some people talking about how, um, you know, for those of us who struggled with support systems, that rejected us at certain points in our lives. Um, myself specifically in this, in this regard, um, I had support through those really tender beginning years, um, for what I needed. And because of that, I had the tenacity to hold out hope when I didn't have the support that I needed later yeah. on in life in the tender, in the, in the other tender years. And it sounds like, you know, like you being with your mom and her reinforcing those themes of your loved valued and your likes 
and goals and where your heart wants to go is important yeah. no matter what. And you yeah. deserve safety and you deserve, um, you know, all the things, uh, even when it hurts, even when it, even when it hurts. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just wanted to point that out. I think that's so beautiful that, that, you know, you're protected in that way. And that's such a tender age. Yeah. So, um, when you left, you said you left when you were 17 mm -hmm. from your uh, dad's house. Yeah. I moved, I went to college, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, which was mm -hmm. about two and a half hours from home. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to be a doctor that didn't last very long. Uh, <laughs> I, I ended up coming back to Arizona State University and pursuing broadcast journalism. I actually wanted to do what you're doing now. And Heck I might yeah. still, who knows? But um, but then music, you know, had always been sort of like beneath the surface and then it just boiled to the top and you couldn't deny it. So I, I had my first record deal when I was about 21. And that coincided with my sort of like um, experimentation with boys. Like mm -hmm. that's when I had my first boyfriend and like kissed my first guy and like, you know, wait, you're gay. <laughs> yeah. No, my boyfriend is though. <laughs> yeah. When so, did you wait? So when did you, when did you know? When did when you I know? I was a bumblebee. Okay. When I dressed up as a bumblebee. Yeah. I knew I was gay then. Or when I was playing with the Barbies, I'm not saying that every kid that plays with Barbies is gay, but I certainly knew that I was not cut from the same cloth as the rest of the boys at school uh -huh. at all. And my mom always knew it. She always knew. I mean, even when I came out, she was like, okay, <laughs> great. Glad you finally admitted it to yourself. But I knew you girl, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the record deal and coming out, I didn't come out then, but the record deal and, and acknowledging that I was gay, 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 gay mm -hmm. happened kind of at the same time, but I, at the same time had to like hide it from the label and from just people. I, I, I very much had to present myself according to the industry standards at the time right. as straight. I even did a photo shoot in a Ferrari with like four girls around me like this, like you can find it online still. It's awful. Give me your most mask face right now. I just want to see it. Redo that. Do it. Do it. <laughs> oh, My most mask face. Sup? I don't know. It doesn't even work. I, I always <laughs> find some. I always find some laughter in that question, especially when talking about people from our community, um, other uh, men too. Because for me, you know, like there's there's so much of those of us who were raised in that time frame um uh, safety right like safety yeah. safety was uh you learn how to hide yourself you learn yeah, yes you learn how to hide yourself in plain sight yeah mm -hmm. and, and reassert your masculinity because god forbid you know you're feminine mm -hmm. i mean that's that's not what a guy is supposed to be no even more so like at that time right you know what year do you, do you will I write about what year that was when you um when we're talking about you've got your first record deal we're doing the ferrari shoot yeah yeah, yeah. that was um, 2000 and between 2005 2006 i had just gotten off of working on a cruise ship that i also did that for a minute for like five months mm -hmm. worked on a cruise ship which introduced me to all walks of life, you know, from different oh, countries, yeah. which was, I was like, oh my God, there's more than just Phoenix, Arizona. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was my, yeah. During that time, um, I remember even like, especially in the South, gosh, depending on where you are in the country, even now things are very different uh, when it comes to LGBTQ plus. Um, laws, social awareness, uh, social rules, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, all the things, uh, advancements, um, what we're fighting. Yeah. And, um, it has been an interesting and very nuanced trajectory, um, in society. 
I would say literally since 2000. That's why I'm so, I was so interested in, in that particular, in what, yeah, what time frame you know, yeah. between now and then what you're talking about, because, you know, I look back to, as you said that I was thinking of, do you remember that Ricky Martin and Christina Aguilera duet? And, uh, how could you not? Of course. Yes. And, uh, he wants to be lonely. Right. Yeah. It was very, you know, all about the romance and he, he wasn't out of the closet yet. And yeah. I don't know how long after that it wasn't, super long, I don't think, but it was in, in, you know, the following years that he actually came out. And so many people were like, duh, mm-hmm. I was not, I was, uh, very happy to find out that a prominent male, good looking male figure was also. Yeah. Like, cause me. we weren't see- I mean, I think we're probably relatively the same age, but we weren't seeing a lot of that. 25. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 22 uh-huh. dude. Um, we weren't seeing a lot of that on TV. Like we weren't seeing, you know, uh, like, ourselves on the screen like that right because gay wasn't really like it wasn't like super cool no yeah well it wasn't cool and it was yeah there was i I don't really know what i don't know what i would call how it was necessarily looked at because it was was more like if you're gay that's fine be who you are but like hide it don't talk about it it'll it'll destroy your career whatever career that is Yeah. yeah yeah so you are um you're doing the ferrari shoot with females. Yeah. And Having a boyfriend at home at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, golly, I, I, I can't help but think back to, you I was, know, I was able to compartmentalize a lot though at that time. Cause my dream was to be this successful singer. I had just gotten a record deal under a major label mm-hmm. distributed by an indie label. Sorry, other way around. But I was just like, cool. I on the prize. All I have to do is grin and bear it for this photo shoot. Then I can go home to my like my normal life, my real life. Right. So I was able to do that. Now I 100% couldn't do that. Cause I just, my artistry is directly tied into who I am as a person so deeply that I, you would know a fake David if you saw him, you'd be like, that is not you, boo. Like that's, mm-hmm. why are you doing, why are you using those pronouns? Why are you, you know, being super butch in a Ferrari with girls? Unless I'm like, you know, helping them get dressed or like braiding their hair. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Let me ask you, do, do you, what are your, what pronouns do you use? He, him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But at the, at the time I was recording songs where I was like singing to like, girl, I love you girl. And she's oh, the one right. for me. And gotcha. You know what I mean? Like that was just, I mean, that was, and like, even my producers at the time knew that I was gay. Mm-hmm. A couple of them knew. And, but I was still writing these songs that were geared towards women. It takes me back to, you know, you've already mentioned the whole, uh, you know, compartmentalizing, which is a direct result from um, the uh, trauma survival, like a coping coping skill. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And how, you know, you do anything you could to divert the attention off of you. Yeah. For off of the real you. Yeah. To seek safety. Um, and so what else was going on in your life at that point that you, like, so you found you were finding love, but what were you doing to, um, make things okay for David inside? I don't think, I I don't think I was really doing anything to make David okay. I was, you know, my whole goal was to be successful as a singer. So anything that would get me there so that I could support my mother and my family get out of poverty. I mean, we grew up, you know, pretty, pretty poor. 
that was the goal. There wasn't really a whole lot of time to think about my feelings. Like that wasn't a thing, you know, I didn't come from that sort of family anyway. Like F your feelings. Like we have bills to pay and food to put on the table. That's where I was at. So the self care never really came into play until maybe a few years ago when I started realizing that I'm more than just a singer. I'm more than someone who needs to provide for my family. Mm. Self care didn't, that wasn't a thing then. No, you at didn't. all. I and even older we, generations, we didn't that even wasn't hear a thing. that term. No, until therapy was taboo. Yeah, self care wasn't a thing. Um, if you heard, if you heard, if somebody heard you were going to therapy, the next thing would be, what? what? Something's wrong with him. He's got mental issues. Yeah. What do you know? What happened? Slash. We all have mental issues, but nobody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the time, like it wasn't. You would never talk about therapy. And if you were in couples therapy, oh God. your marriage was on the way out yeah. or your relationship was on the way out. Like it wasn't, you know. And everybody wanted the tea. And everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. They weren't trying to help. They just wanted to know the drama. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I would say like uh, when I did American Idol and getting to Hollywood, mm-hmm. it was after the show was more of the grind and more of trying to stay up here. Mm-hmm trying to stay above the fray and not become another, you know, Hollywood socialite on drugs or whatever, dead, you know? So that was, that was the, and so everything felt like, you know, they, this hustle culture is like really detrimental. And it was, it was back then too, just to keep going, going, going and not rest. Cause I, I mean, I ran myself pretty ragged for a right. long time. I mean, it's, it's something that I think most of us know, like you can't, logically right like you can't we're human you can't do that yeah but but, um i think anybody who's driven and wants to make it can relate to some period probably in their life where they were hustling their their butt off for um a goal i'm curious when you were processing your reasoning behind the hustle right Mm -hmm. like what was your end goal was it just to find you know, you mentioned the support for your family and, um, being able to leave behind, I guess, like troublesome past and things like that. Were you really processing where, like where the end goal was, or was it literally just getting, getting past and getting out of where everybody was at that time? I think it was like a trauma response to get out, to get out of, every single way that I grew up, even though I love both of my parents dearly, like I do love, my dad's one of my best friends, my mom's one of my best friends. The whole experience of having a kid at 17, like something's gonna turn out wrong, you know what I mean? Like it's not gonna be smooth sailing. So for me to get the hell out of Dodge was like goal number one. Mm-hmm. And, and then I know for sure always like the subtext for me is reaching anyone I can with my music because I have a lot to say and I have a great story. I believe I have a great story. Mm-hmm. And I do know that I'm talented and I have a lot to say that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. That was always there. That was the subtext. But the fight or flight in me was like, go. Like prove to all these hoes that you got this and that you weren't just another, I dreamt too bigger, you know? Um, and so I... Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted to do all the things. I wanted uh-huh. to touch people with my music, but I also wanted to prove everyone wrong, you know? And I think in those ways, I was a little misguided, you know, as a young little starlet in Hollywood mm-hmm. at the epitome of his fame at the time. You know, I was, I, was just, I was just chasing that sort of like next high, which would have been, you know, another TV show or a platinum selling record or a Grammy. And, 
you know, I think once I, you know, in the last several years, once I've been able to sort of like shed some of that and be like, I'm more than just what I have to offer to music. I'm a mm -hmm. great partner. I'm a great big brother. I'm a wonderful son. Like mm -hmm. I'm a great friend, like all those things that define who I am and not just the singer. Because if I don't succeed in those things that I define myself, which is just a singer, mm -hmm. well then what, I'm a failure. Like if I don't have a Grammy by the time I said I, which that time has passed by the way of, of when I wanted to have one. Yeah. But like, does, what does that mean for me? Does that mean that I'm no longer worthy? Does that mean that I, you know, that I failed everyone back in Arizona? Right. Family. Well, it means that if your priority is, and I I don't remember who I first heard this quote, but I, I quote this all the time and it's something that's meant so much to me. Um, you know, the dynamic that I hear you saying is initially you were uh, basing the, your climb off of running from something, mm -hmm. even though you were telling yourself you were running towards it. Yeah. But the truth is, is that once you started healing, what that looked like is you were running towards your goals. Yeah. You weren't focused on running from and showing everybody in your past. You're running towards... Yeah the positive you're running towards the healing you're running towards uh making a difference you're running towards totally right and um towards and not away yeah and proving to myself not other people that i can do whatever it is i set out to do and like looking back over my almost 20 year career i've done a lot of great things like i've done things that i set out to do that i forgot that i even like i make a living off of touring and making music that's wild to do that for that long yeah um and so that in itself is like just a huge win for me. And, and, and I didn't have to prove that to anybody but myself, you know? So I yeah, think I think one that's of the, accurate though. I was running from a lot of stuff and running away from it. But now I'm running towards like my potential and like my ability and like mm. constantly growing. And I'm still healing though in all this. Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, I think we all are. Yeah. The difference, I think the difference is, is like once you start to like own, own your, bro you're like, oh wait, I'm broken and, but we're all broken. Yeah, we're all and broken. And yeah. you, you then start this lifelong he healing journey that like you embrace the brokenness. Yeah. And yeah. it's this whole, like, I'm not an open oozing wound that's trying to pretend like I'm perfect. Yeah. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I've got these wounds, but I'm healing and we continue healing and, um, yeah, for sure. I don't know if that's a great metaphor. No, it's, not, a, it's but, great. <laughs> I think that we, I think adults should all just get like, someone should just tell you every day, like, I'm proud of you. You know, like Heck we yeah. do little kids or like get a sticker and be like, Hey, you did life today. Like as tough as life is, you did that. And I'm so proud of you. Like, it, it, I think we're so conditioned to think that this is what we're supposed to do and it's going to be this way. And that, no, it's not like, it's hard. Like sometimes I want to cry. Sometimes I get frustrated. Sometimes I want to scream in my car. Like, cause I just, I don't know how to process the world mm -hmm. that is like happening yep. to me all the time. And then social media and like, it's just like, it's a lot, it's a lot. And to get up and be able to do all these things during the day, like that is an accomplishment. It absolutely is. Speaking of accomplishments, I want to come back to one of my favorites that, that is in your, um, in your basket of them. Um, but regarding what you're talking about, like the wake up every day, somebody needs to tell you. So Leanne Rimes, the country singer, um, she's got a great, she does, she's a podcaster as well. And, um, she had a guest on, I think her last season, something like that. I can't, I'm, I feel bad cause I can't remember the name, but, um, it's the nugget of truth that I love. I'll always remember. Um, she brought up and said, uh, 
there's this, I think she's an author and she wrote this book on, um, just like self-acceptance and, you know, all the good stuff, right. You want to follow. And it was about how every morning put a, put a sticky note on your mirror to remind yourself to give yourself a high five. And she was like, there's neurological components, um, behind what that does for you and reinforcing that you're validating. Yeah. Not only am I worth it, but like I'm waking up and I'm doing, I'm doing the thing. Yeah. And, um, you're just validating your appreciation and your sure. approval for yourself and that that's the most important thing. I do that. I have sticky notes. I do just don't it. use them. I yeah, should definitely I, do that. The uh, affirmations and yeah, that one in and of itself, like sometimes I, I, I try to do it as many mornings as possible and I'll say something that's a, whatever that comes to mind that, that, you know, just reaffirms the value that I believe I know in my heart to believe about myself. Yeah. And it, you know, a lot of people might look at that and say, Oh, that's so vain or whatever. But you know what? It's so, it's so therapeutic and it's vain at all, especially when everything in the world is telling you otherwise, right. You know, comparisons and social media and what you're, what you're lacking and all that kind of stuff. I think that's great. Like Mm. you can talk to yourself. I mean, the amount of times that I don't do sticky notes, I should, I'm going to start actually. But the amount of times that I talk to myself throughout the day, you would think I was a crazy person. Same. Especially in my car. You do the same thing. Out loud. Out loud. Oh yeah. Out loud. You got this, David. Hey, it's not as bad as it seems. Traffic's going to clear up. You're good. Uh You know what I mean? Out loud. And people are probably like, oh, he's on his Bluetooth in his car. But no, I'm just talking to myself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's healthy. It is. I think so too. You got to have that dialogue. You know, there's some people that don't even have an internal dialogue. Really? Yes. I know. It's bizarre. I I know. Internal dialogue is going on right now as we're talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) How do you not have one? I don't know. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I read an article about it and my niece, I don't remember how my niece was like, yeah, I don't have one of those. I don't have like thought, like a thought stream going on in my head about what she though. 30. Oh yeah. She's a woman. Yeah. And she's highly successful. But it's, it's the, the internal dialogue of words of like, what's going on? What am I going to do? Like you, you and I, you were, we're taught, so, right? Like yeah. that, it's a stream of consciousness that identif- that it relays itself in the form of actual words. So yeah. like you could, you're thinking it in words and these people that think this other way are, they're literally thinking it in just the thought in and of itself, not the stream of consciousness in word form. Which That's is crazy. I know. I'm honestly, all, there's always different scenarios going on in my head. I can't shut him off most of the time. Mm-hmm. So that, well, that's good for her. Right? <laughs> she can focus. I know. I know. Yes. Um, so back to one of my favorite, favorite things in your uh, list of accomplishments and awesome things that you've gotten to do that were, in my opinion, notable. You performed for uh, President Barack Obama's, um, was it the the... Inauguration. Inauguration. Yeah. 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 In DC. What was that like for you? Surreal. Really, really cool. Um, that was in, that was in 08. So I had just gotten off American Idol. It was like, I think it was like six months later. Right. It, it was like later on in that year. Uh-huh. Um, and I was, it was a, an, a, uh, an organization called declare yourself. My friend Brent Miller had, um, brought me on board. Um, it's one of Norman Lear's companies. Okay. Um, and they had recorded, they were recording the song called born again American. So I, um, they asked me if I'd be a part of it, and I was. And then they wanted us to go out and perform it um, at the inauguration that 
was wild. I got into like the banquet room that was like partitioned out for, for dressing rooms. I'm like, who else is going to be here? Mm -hmm. And it was like Jessica Alba, Maroon 5, I'm Adam Levine, John Legend. We went on right after John Legend. So technically before John Legend, sorry. So we opened for John Legend, which was crazy. Wow. Um, and just to be a part of that monumental moment in history, you know, that, I mean, he hands down, obviously as he should be everyone's favorite president. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just to be just to be able to say that like that's bigger than anything I would have ever seen for myself mm. as a seven-year-old little kid in a bumblebee outfit yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean so that was yeah that was surreal and I had never been to DC before so it was a vibe it was definitely one for the books for sure absolutely yeah so um and Beyonce was there too. What? How is that the last thing you're gonna tell me about <laughs> this experience? I didn't get to meet her, but she was she was there. She was there. I met Beyonce later, but uh, she was there, and I was just like, you know, yes, so cool. Like, I do know. Mind blown. Um, as it should be. Yeah. So speaking of mind blown, um, you know, we talked about trauma, uh, coping, unhealthy, healthy, all different kinds of ways you know, we're in the land of, uh, entertainment where there's all kinds of stuff that people use, uh, to, yeah. um, cope, cope unhealthily just to get the job done. And it surrounds, it's, it's surrounds the industry and infiltrates it. And so I know a huge part of your story is that you fell into that. Mm -hmm. What was the period? Um, you know, we talk a lot about how it's fun until it's not fun anymore. Yeah. Um, what led up to the point where I know rehab was part of your story? Um, what, what in your what life circumstances? Cause for all of us, it wasn't, uh, dandelions and roses and, yeah. you know, happy, wonderful things that just lead us down that path to the doors of rehab. Yeah, it's true. It's always the rock bottom moments. Mm -hmm. My rock bottom moment was in 2017. I, that it was the height of my Xanax usage. I was, you know, three bars a day mixed with alcohol um and it was new year's eve of that year and i i don't remember a lot of this but i had taken xanax in the afternoon um and then sometime around dinner time i had managed to finish off like a fifth of vodka had no recollection of it went to dinner um people said i was visibly like swaying which sounds about accurate with considering what i had ingested yeah um and I went back to the hotel to take a nap and I think I drank, might've drinking more and I completely missed the New Year's Eve kiss with my boyfriend and he came back to the room and I was completely just out of it. I mean, it was like a, it was like a, he woke me up and I was just panicked with the whole thing. Just not realizing that I had, I was missing out on life. Yeah. That was really what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And it wasn't the first time. And I knew that if I didn't do something, it wouldn't be the last time because I had no control over this. This was I was powerless Man. over this drug. My body was dependent on it. My brain was dependent. Like there was just nothing I was going to do without help. Yeah. So I remember telling my boyfriend, like, I think I need to go home. Like, I think I need, I need to go to rehab. Like I need to get clean. There's so much life that's to, left to live. And I'm just literally like pissing it away. Um, and so, yeah, that was the final straw for me. And my dad drove out, picked me up, checked into rehab. And then the most excruciating moments were, were really coming down from Xanax fully. That was full on like psychosis, thought people were trying to kill me, broke out of the facility, went to the hospital, broke out of that hospital, went to another hospital, 
ripped the IVs out, thought my mom was another person, thought I was in Thailand, like full on psychosis, like yeah. psycho. Um, and I didn't know what it would, it would, the lines between reality and like, you know, this fantasy that I was carefully curating in my mind were so blurred. I didn't know what was real and what wasn't. Mm. Um, and thank God I was able to bounce back from that. But some people don't. And my mom was, my mom, I remember my mom just like sobbing when I finally like came to, mm. you know, weeks later. Cause I stayed with her afterwards too. And she was just like, Oh my God, you're back. Thank you. Thank you. God. Yeah. And I was like, where was I? <laughs> you know, I had no, I, I mean a lot of it I don't remember, but then some of it is really, really vivid to me. Yep. So it's amazing what you, what your brain can, can do. It's super powerful. It is. And you know, the things that it protect, it shields us from like the yeah. things we're going to remember are the things it shields us from because it's too much for us. Yeah. Um, benzos are, you know, God, such a powerful thing. I know somebody, um, close to me in recovery back in, in, um, middle Tennessee, he was recovering from uh, benzo addiction and, um, through his did, the, did withdraw, um, the, the actual like uh weaned off of it yeah and even the, even doing that he ended up uh his eyes crossed like permanently and ended up having really to, yeah he had to have surgery to get it um and i oh. bring that up just to say like it's so benzos are drugs period no one's one's not worse than the other but like the the when you talk about the severity of like neur neurological damage that can be done um there are specifics about benzos that are so unique and nuanced mm -hmm. to that drug um, as opposed to so many of the others. And yeah. um, so I think there needs to be more education too out there, especially for younger kids. Because before you start taking before it, before you start taking it, like this is highly addictive. It's benzos are not meant to take long term mm. for most people. I think there's some exceptions, right? But the way that like, people talk about it in songs, like a pop the Zanny and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, mm. do you understand? Like, I'm not even trying to be like a parent over here. I'm just saying like, I'm living proof that that shit messes you up. Like you will literally lose your mind. Yeah. And there, it, the way I was popping in a psychiatrist's office here in Hollywood, like every few months, like a new psychiatrist and I'd pay $75. And but the, by the time I walked out of the room, I had a script for Adderall and Xanax. Like that's crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and there's kids that are hooked on it now. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because you just, you lose I mean, my sister to this is so sad. I remember one time going, uh, we were at a bar with my, it was like my sister, my dad was there. Um, and my sister looked at me cause I had, you know, I was drunk and high off Xanax mm -hmm. and she was like, I don't even recognize you anymore. Like your eyes are empty. And that's mm -hmm. like, ugh, like my sister knows me better than anyone. Like that's awful to hear that. Were you able to receive that? No, not at the time. I was yeah. pissed. I was like, how dare she tell me I right. look empty. I'm just tired. I just came back from off the road. I had a cocktail, like all of the denial. You yeah. know what I mean? Like all of it. Like yes. she wasn't even talking about the road. She wasn't talking about all that. She, you look like a shell of a person, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, at that moment, like I knew it was so real that I had to deny it to myself because if I would have acknowledged that reality in that moment, I probably would have checked into rehab then. Right. You know, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to go. You weren't ready in the, the, it's so, you know, yeah, that's like claws in me. I right. wasn't, you know, it was just like, we talk so much about how the disease is driving the bus until it's not like, until we've had enough that, that like we hit our bottom and we're like, get out, get the F out of the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking over. And, uh, I have whatever so much like empathy and sympathy for people that suffer from any addiction mm -hmm. because you know, 
I hate it when people are like, well, just don't have that drink or don't pop that pill or don't do whatever your addiction is. And it's like, thank you. Mm, it's my not pro- helpful. My producer, Aaron, and I were just talking about the disease versus willpower conversation. Yeah. And um, I'd, I'd just be interested to hear your take on, um, you know, how... How do, you, how do you look at that? How did you learn about uh, what that was? Because it's easy like to think it's all about willpower, even when we're in an active addiction, mm-hmm. right? It's like I either haven't asserted my willpower or I don't want to or whatever. Um, at what point did you like get to the place where you learned and realized and accepted like, okay, this is a thing that I struggle and suffer with. And it's not, it's not a willpower thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've had my, um, in and outs with AA, like Mm -hmm. I've went to AA and I've been sober. I've, you know, I've drank and I've been sober again. And there's some really incredible, valuable lessons in that program. I think to answer your question, like admitting that you're powerless to the substance is integral and seeking help when you know that, like, I think, when you, when you no longer come from a place of like ego, like I can do this and I'm going to do this because this is how I was brought up, right? Like to keep fighting through and like, you're stronger than this. And if you, if you don't fight it, then you're just weak, you know, right? that's ego. Like mm. when you let that go and you realize that like, I can't handle all the things that life gives me, especially addiction. It's a disease. You wouldn't tell mm. somebody, you know, you have cancer. Oh, I mean, just get rid of it. Right. You know, it's the same thing with addiction and it's, it's psychological. And I do believe it's passed on from generation to generation. Mm. That's a bigger, that's a bigger monster than you could have ever imagined. Mm. So you asking for help is incredible. Like Mm. that's, that says you understand that like, this is bigger than you. Right. So let's figure it out. And I think I realized that when it was New Year's Eve of 2017, I was just like, this is I'm, I, and I have never missed a uh, midnight celebration. Like I'm always like, it's a new year, new me, Yeah, you know? And I missed it. I slept through it and I disappointed somebody that I love very deeply again. And I was like, okay, acknowledging you have a problem and then not doing anything about it is worse than just having a problem. Right. So I had to check into rehab. And when, once I said those words out loud, when I said, I think I need to go home, that was it for me. Like, yeah. I just knew we're going to do this because I can't put everybody through this again. Yeah. You know? So you definitely were at a place of acceptance that I had a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, it's not even just the physical pain, it's the mental shame and anguish and the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. And why did you do that? You know, that eat away at me. Mm-hmm. Um, so therapy's helped, but I'm currently in the process of finding a new therapist. Mm. So, hmm. you know, it's just all like. We have some parallels. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Self-discovery is a bitch. That, I'll say that. I mean, you know, once you discover the things about yourself that, you're, that you don't like, then you have to work through them and figure out why is it you don't like them and how do we get through them? How do we get to the other side of it? Well, I think it's, you know, going back to our brains protecting us. Yeah. We're only, I, I firmly believe that we're only able to see the parts that um, we can deal with when we're capable of dealing with them. Yeah. Sometimes people bring things up to us and we're not at the place, right? Like we're not in a place where we can even hear it Mm -hmm. and it might come across defensive or whatever. But like when you're, when you're capable of, uh, actually confronting something, you all of a sudden have ears to hear and actually believe what's being 
the message that's being you know played over in your head and um so I, I, that, that is a, I don't, I mean, that's, that, that's my own truth. It's something that I say, I don't, I, I'm not speaking that out as like that. a ultimate, ultimate truth of the world, but I, I firmly believe that to be true in my own life experience for sure. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I love that. I mean, it's true though, right? Like mm. when you're ready to, re- to accept the truth mm. and people deliver it to you when it's coming from a place of love and concern, then, then you, then you can take that and you can like, you can be useful and do something useful with it and like, yep. and try to not just correct the behavior, but understand like why you were behaving that way. Mm -hmm. And I've come to realize over my years of reflecting through my childhood that like, there's a lot of stuff that I haven't unearthed that still weighs really heavy on me. Uh, And I think sometimes when I abuse alcohol or when I was abusing Xanax, Mm -hmm. it's because I haven't touched on those things they still are there and a lot and I will say like a lot of my tumultuous childhood with my stepmom and my dad being gone and the kids and being gay and like not having any friends and stuff like that Mm -hmm. like that that weighed really heavy on me and I can only imagine that it's still in there somewhere right because I haven't I haven't got I haven't gotten it out and like talked about it and so instead it like hides itself in the booze or you know in sex or in salty foods or you know whatever it is that i decide to do to an extreme because i'm an extremist like i it's just i don't know it's it's something that i have to constantly work at every day Hi, i'm the problem it's me <laughs> yeah yeah no i like we were talking about the other day just the um a buddy of mine was was texting me talking about how he, we were he was having a little procedure done and he was talking about how his alcoholism, alcoholism was coming through and it clearly had nothing to do with alcohol. And I was explaining yeah. to Aaron, I was like, you know, that's how, that's like the, that's how we talk about, you know, the, cause we do, we do everything to the extreme. We don't know moderation, yeah. you know, and, um, God, it takes one to know one. Like we get it. Yeah. We really get it. And so, I mean, it, it, it's that way in so many different areas of our life. Um, I, th- I think having somebody that like knows the journey and knows mm-hmm. sort of like how hard this can be is so it's like a big warm hug and you're like, okay, cool. Like, I'm just doing the best I can, you know, right. people that can see that. Um, it, I think it goes back to what you're saying about like when someone is, tells you like, I see these things in you and like, but I'm here to support you when it's coming from like a place of love, mm-hmm. it's easier to like take that and like do something with it. Absolutely. Versus like, you're wrong for that. And you know, we're also in a, we're also in a place of, um, Mm, gosh, when it, when it comes to, uh, addiction, sobriety, the journey of, um, self-discovery, self-discovery and healing, um, we're coming out of decades of this black and white thinking of what recovery looks like, you know, abstinence or nothing. Right. Yeah. And, um, and you know, harm reduction models are look all different kinds of ways, right? Really so do. your life and how you've described it to me looks completely different today, even though you've got the insight to look and say, you know, I, I'm still stumbling yeah. and I'm trying to learn and reflect as I, as, as that happens. And I don't know what healing is going to look like for me in the future. Um, not everybody's path looks like that, you know, for, I, I don't know that I couldn't have done that. Mine would have been a revolving door and then death. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. for some people, things look different. Right. And yours was this, you know, that your saving grace and your safety was clearly right. Removing something that was taking you straight to the path of death. Death, And, um, so many of us, I think it's, it's interesting because a lot of people get sober completely from substances and then go straight to, um, disordered eating and sex addiction 
and you know in the rooms of 12 steps they get glorified for their amount of time of sobriety but nobody you know that neither they or their circle are taking note of or holding them accountable for the destructive medicating behaviors that they're participating in that are tearing them down yeah yeah to the place of destruction right and so that's why i think it's so important that we have these conversations about what does accountability taking inventory and the process of healing look like in your life today Mm -hmm. david hernandez this person that person all these different stories because it is it's more diverse than even the colors of the rainbow. I, I truly oh, believe yeah. and we're finding out. I love you know? that you just said that because it recovery looks different for everyone. Mm-hmm. This is your journey. And there's a lot of people that feel the same way, like mm-hmm. that are trying to find the remedy for them because mm-hmm. it's not one shoe fits all type of thing. Like you just said. So I think that's, that's really great. That you said that. Cause I think there's a, a lot of people out there that are thinking it's black and white. And then they get frustrated when like the black doesn't work or the white doesn't work. And it's like, there's a whole palette in between all this mm-hmm. that might work for you. Didn't work for him, you right. know? And there's so many stories like that yeah. out there. And, there I, and I just love hearing them because when you said harm reduction, that's one of the things I was doing with my therapist, mm. um, a few months ago. Um, and it, and it worked for the most part. It was, it, you know, it was an alternative that I had not ever known about before. Right. Um, well, if, you know, this, this, is, this term is something that a lot of people watching or listening right now may, have, may, may be hearing for the first time. And so if I were to simplify it down for you people, um, <laughs> you know, it's at, it, at its root function, it is referring to um, a form of intervention or therapy um, into one's behavior that is changing the behavior uh, slightly or a certain point that may not be this black and white, right? But it is modification of the behavior that is enough that it is bringing a uh, level closer than we were to safety, closer than we were to staying alive. Um, And if you look at it as a step-by-step approach, it's more effective than saying all or nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny when we were just talking about how the, the, the alcoholic mindset of like either do like, we're either going to do everything all at once to the wall or nothing at all. And, um, and so in so many ways, I, I think that having this mindset of one size fits all is, is not what, we know the answer is that that is not what's going to save and fix our problem of addiction in the United States. Right. Um, there's got to be a approach that is uh, procured for the individual. And um, you're bought into your healing process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've practiced this place of acceptance that like, I'm going to stumble, but I'm also going to continue to fight and find what's, mm-hmm. what's right for me. So, um, you, you hit on the topic of therapy and I really want to know when did that come into play for you and what have been some significant milestones and breakthroughs that you experienced from that process? Well, I've been in therapy. Um, I'm not actually in therapy at the moment. I'm looking for a new therapist, uh, mainly because the therapist I was going to, I've, I felt like we kind of hit a ceiling. Sure. And, and that happens. And I, I think more. with most. Yeah. And it, and I, yeah. I've never experienced that before, but I kind of, there became a moment where I was kind of knowing more than he did about this whole addiction thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hold on, I need to, I, 
for all you've done great yeah. <laughs> but let me take a break and find a new one but um when i was a kid we went to family therapy my mom and then my sister's dad who she was with at the time and it was an awful experience like so i i was always reluctant to go to therapy mm. but over the years my boyfriend was like you should really get into therapy 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 hey look i found some names for you give him a call and i'd be like yeah yeah whatever um and then finally <laughs> I, I i i leaned into it and i made the phone call um, it was a reference to a friend mm-hmm. and it was, it was great. I've been in therapy sober and I've also been in therapy like while I've not been sober. Okay. Right. Yeah. And both are completely different experiences. Um, I think, I think what I've learned about myself is that when I, even, even now, like when I'm talking through things, I learn about myself and when I speak it out loud and I'm able to like chronologically I'm able to put the pieces together more like when I, when I'm vulnerable and I share. Mm-hmm. So therapy's always, it's been great for me because I'm able to like talk about like the childhood stuff, but then also talk about like the adult stuff and the business stuff that irks me and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's hell. I think everyone should be in therapy. I think therapists should be in therapy. They mm-hmm. probably are. Um, I don't think there's a bad side to it. I think that just when you find the right therapist, like stick with that person. Mm-hmm. I'm still in search of the right therapist. Sure. But so far, I think I took that big like step that I was so terrified to take. Well, I, I love that you hit on that because I think one of the biggest therapeutic processes at the very beginning, um, especially once you, if you had a bad therapeutic experience as a child, mm-hmm. um, many people can probably relate to this aside from not even having a bad therapeutic experience, uh, is just when you take that first leap of asking for help. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's game changing for sure. Um, because we're so, we are so, 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 um, uh, groomed to not do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like to, to just do things ourselves and, um, be self-sufficient. Yeah. And, um, like you said, I mean, I think that we're still living in, uh, the, we have, we've still got the generational influence in our brains from past, you know, past generations oh, yeah. of like, you have to, you, you've got to be broken, broken and defective. Yeah. And uh, you know, to, to go to therapy. And so, but the difference is like, yeah, I'm broken and defective, but I'm also amazing. And those things make me who I am today. That's absolutely right. Right. Because, I mean, this whole idea of perfection is its such a myth that there's no such thing as perfection. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's never going to be. So when you can, I think, yeah, it's a game changer when you realize, like, ah, I'm always going to be a work in progress. Was that a gradual realization for you? Or was there a point that you can, like, think back to where you finally realized that? It's gradual. It's like every day I discover, like, new little nuggets about myself mm-hmm. that I never knew existed. And I'm like, oh, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. You know, sometimes I'm brat, I'm selfish and I I disregard people's needs over mine, you know? Right. But then other days, like I'm super giving and I, I feel like I give too much, mm-hmm. you know, to people that don't deserve it. Um, but I, but it's all, but it's all like, again, the internal dialogue is always just going. Yeah. Some days are really, really wonderful and other days are just shit. Wait, so you're <laughs> telling me you went to treatment a psych ward, years of therapy, and you're not completely fixed? I know, isn't that crazy to believe? Yeah, I mean, I know I look amazing, but (laughs) yeah, no. And trust me, there's nothing like, you know, 
your loved one or your loved ones to tell you a little bit about yourself. That's very true. Yeah. But if I had a dollar or a dime or even a penny for every time that I had uh, someone to um, hmm, infer or, you know, just convey the expectation that their family member is going to, um, you know, follow whatever recommended process from the treatment team that includes discharging to, uh, you know, a therapy, a time of therapy. Um, you know, they're like looking at their watch going, okay, so when is the final fix yeah. going to take, <laughs> yeah. take place? Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah. the beauty and the freedom is only when we like, like drop the like the clenched fists uh, and practice radical acceptance. I love that term, radical acceptance, because it's it conveys this just this posture of the unknowing. The like the process is never going to be done. Yeah, and um, I like that radical though, because mm -hmm. it's so radical that you're willing. It's a radical acceptance. You'll accept all of it. Mm -hmm. It's radical. Like this, mm -hmm. we're going to accept all of what makes us us. Yes. And that's totally okay. And I like the idea. I always call it white knuckling. Cause I just, I love to white knuckle things. And I'm just like, the best thing I think for me has been like pausing before I make permanent decisions. Oh, it is the hardest thing for me. I've worked so I've, I've been working so hard to do it too. Like I'll even run it past a couple different people, Yes, you know, I do this, right? I'll be like, Are you, so here's what I'm gonna send, you know? But I'll wait like an hour or even like the next morning before I send it. And that's one thing I did learn in AA that yeah. at the time he was like, keep your side of the street clean before you respond, see how you feel in one hour. And if mm -hmm. you can do that, see how you feel the next day. And it's always a different way that I'm feeling or it's worded a different way because mm -hmm. I'm feeling a different way, mm -hmm. right? And so it's, yeah. And I used to not do that. I used to not do that. Like I would just be like, and let the chips fall where they may. And my life was chaos. So it's, it's nice to just take a deep breath as much as I'm like restless. Mm. And I pull back on caffeine as much as I can. I know I should for you. I shouldn't drink as much as I do, but I, I've been trying to pull back cause it just, my anxiety goes like, Whoa, same. Yeah. I need to get on the, get a hop on that train. Um, I don't always get it right. <laughs> yes. So, or, just an observation, which I feel like is true for me, and maybe it's true for you growing up in a house with addictions. There's a very good chance that that served you really well as a child, like having to make adult decisions in a house with someone who maybe, you know, I know I can tell how much you dearly love your mom, and yeah. I feel the same about my family member. But it, can you talk a little bit about maybe where that came from? Were you having to make decisions? You had to protect yourself, make decisions in your dad's house on how to protect yourself, maybe how to protect your mom. Do you think that that, that skill set of being able to make rapid decisions ever actually served you? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Wow. That was like a little light bulb moment. Yeah. And unlearning that's really difficult, really difficult. Uh, because yeah, everything, I mean, everything was so chaotic growing up. And so like my mom, you know, like she was young and like she was partying and she mm -hmm. was having a good time. And so like, I didn't know what mood I was going to get when she came home, you know? So you adjust accordingly. Yes. Right. It's like playing football. Like it just happens so quick and it's high impact. Uh -huh. And then living with like my stepmom, you know, it, I was always on pins and needles. Mm -hmm. So I either had to like, really quickly correct what I just said or just not say that thing. And 
stay out of people's way at the same time. Oh, it's just like, fuck, like it's yeah. <laughs> a lot. But yeah, I think, I think for a long time that sort of like knee jerk response really served well. It also created a lot of franticness and anxiety growing up, but like it did help and it, it does help with like quick thinking, I guess. But what you're describing is hypervigilance and it's, <laughs> it's a direct result from the, like the trauma of, you know, having to be on guard all the time. Yeah. And cortisol levels through the roof. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, You know, and I think that an an interesting um, correlation between the two households is right. Like you're living with an active, uh, you know, high function, high functioning, active addict. And you go from that household to another one where it's not the, the addiction that's driving the boat, but it's still dysfunctional family system and abusive uh, nature. And so, but you're still having to use the same code skill to cope and find safety yeah and then you throw in being queer and that's a whole i mean that serves me super well being queer Mm -hmm. right because i can pivot real quick and i can Mm -hmm. show you what you want to see very quickly Mm -hmm. you know so yeah it served me in a lot of ways until it doesn't and then you're like shoot like i don't have to operate this way anymore i'm not that little kid anymore back in in the projects i don't have anybody that's terribly parenting me You know, I don't have that abusive voice in my ear telling me that I'm worthless or a piece of shit or, you know, and those things would be said at a very young age. So, or you like your mother or, you know, things like that. Like, you know, do you have, does that happen to you often where you catch yourself where that narrative's rolling around in your head and you're like, whoa, snap out of that. I remember this one particular time and I've never shared this either with anybody. My stepmom told me, you have an ass like your mother. It's flat. I was a little kid, like I was a little boy. She said that to me and it never left me. It never left me until maybe a couple few years, maybe a few years ago when, cause I've worked out my whole life. And so right. I know that I have an ass. Like I know that I have, I work hard for my body, right. but I've always still been that little kid in my mind that you have an ass like your mother. Hmm. And by the way, my mom, has a wonderful butt, like, you know, but it was said directly to me to shrink me and to shrink my mother. And so, but that, that has always stuck with me. And there's like other things that have stuck with me, like, like the word sissy sticks with me or sissy, sissy sticks with me. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, and I feel sometimes I I used to not anymore, but I used to feel sometimes in certain situations, if I was being too effeminate, I had to tone it down. Right. Now I love the idea that my masculinity and femininity can exist and exist in one vessel. I love that. Like I love how I can turn it on. I can turn it off. I'm, this is all me, honey. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's a superpower that I can do that. Um, but yeah, it, it can creep up it, in the past. It has crept up a lot, but I love that, you know, we're talking about flipping the script on that narrative and I can relate so much to that and the power where you find yourself in, I know this has to have happened to you where um, you're in the presence of people who aren't necessarily open-minded and you realize like I have the opportunity to show up as my true and vulnerable self where both of these things are going to be on full display here and I'm going to absolutely be that. Mm -hmm. And then you just wait and let the discomfort happen. I because love you it. know I that it's that an discomfort. opportunity. It's a teaching moment. You have yeah. an opportunity for change because you don't know who that man or woman is going to go out for the rest of their life and affect. And um, your presence of being true and authentic and a lovely human being 
in front of them mm-hmm. at the same time might be something that tra- changes the trajectory of how they treat a little boy, little girl, or little trans child. Yeah. Long on down the road. 100%. I, I, I've recently, I've met a lot of straight people, <laughs> um, which they're, do they exist anymore? Oh um, gosh. No, they do. Come to the South. Um, no. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. But I'll meet them and we'll start talking and then you can just see when minds have been blown. Uh-huh. Right. Cause this idea of queer or a gay man or, you know, whatever it, it you know, you have a preconceived notion about what, who I'm going to show up as. Right. And then when I, when I, when you see that I have this whole like palette to work with and like, there's all these different parts of me cause I'm human mm-hmm. God forbid, then you're just that you can see like the literal, like, Oh, you know, like, okay. Oh, I see. And I was using the pronouns relating talk. I was talking to my straight friend the other day and I was like, talking about a friend's issues and I was like girl you got to get it together and he's like wait I thought you're talking about your guy friend I go no I am but that's just a pronoun that we use it it's a lingo we use but right you know he's still a guy for all intents and purposes but uh-huh. we and so again that was another like mind-blown moment for him he's like oh I didn't know that you guys called each other and it's like acceptable and it's like a term of endearment yeah, yeah. So, but the next time that he's talking to a person that's queer and they use that pronoun maybe he'll understand you know he won't be so like what is that what did that mean yeah. I know. think back to the famous quote of Maya Angelou, we're constantly teaching people how, wait, we're constantly teaching people how to treat us. Yeah. Like how it's okay to treat you, us. And it's there's like, a couple of different ver- versions, right. but uh, teach people how to treat you or the other one. Yeah. I, one of my favorites is uh, when people show you who you are, who they are, believe them. Oh yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's the other I side believe it from the get sure. this, this mm. these days. You show me who you are. I'm got you. Okay. Heck yeah. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first time. The very first time. There's that addendum that a lot of people forget. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, gosh. This has you're been... not going to fool me twice. Right. I mean, maybe. Have, right. <laughs> Again, work in progress. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, me too. And I think a lot of us uh, uh, have a hard time admitting that we're a work in progress and want to think that we've arrived or whatever. Oof. That's a harmful place to be in. Um mm-hmm. So it's when you stop growing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You stop absolutely. You think that you are got it off. If you got it all figured out, what, why are you still here? What's mm-hmm. going on? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I love that I'm still growing cause I'm learning new ways to deal with stuff every day. You know, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's not, but like, I don't know. It's, it, I feel like, uh, the anxiety has subsided a lot, mm-hmm. but then now there's just like, sometimes this like fear that it's almost over, <laughs> you know, career wise both like life career really yeah sometimes i just get in my head about it because i just turned 40 um and like that's like i mean it's like a mile marker Mm -hmm. like and everything i thought to be true at 40 is like not like all the things that i thought were going to be at 40 it's not it's so different it's beautiful Mm -hmm. but it's like oh shit i don't know any of this like Mm -hmm. it's exciting it's scary you know yeah but I feel more, I think I feel more in touch with myself than I ever have felt like ever. Um, and looking back on like my twenties in Hollywood and idol and the record deals and the touring and stuff like what a confusing time. That was Absolutely. so confusing. When you talk about being more in touch with yourself. Um, I think the first thing that I think of is that you have the freedom and the choice not to operate in fear because when you're not in your full authenticity and grounded 
in just even just like having the inside of knowing who you are and what decisions you're making. Um, most of the time, like every decision you're, you're walking in is rooted in fear. Yeah. And I think like just being around you and talking to you today, I just feel like there's this, this, this aura of, um, just okayness with who you are and this questioning this curiosity that's healthy right yeah, yeah. I'm you're glad on you the journey the, you're on the journey of wanting to know more oh, the story's so not over it's continuing to be written yeah i love that i mean i want to know so much more mm-hmm. i want to show up and i want to be like ready for the next i don't feel like this is it for me like there's I just feel like, um, you know, when you just feel like something's happening, yes. something is like brewing, you know? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Cause I've, my mind has been blown many times throughout my 40 years of life, mm-hmm. but I just know something that's, I'm on like the precipice of like something and whether that's self-discovery or a huge career moment or it's just something it feels I'm like excited something. to watch what it is. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> if you find out before I do, let me know. Oh, well, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think the thing that I, uh, like I said earlier, like the career stuff always is the thing that kind of like plagues me the most. Sure. But I'm trying to be more at peace with, with those things and the things that don't work out weren't for you. You know, mm-hmm. I always say this thing with my best friend, like what God has for you is for you. Mm-hmm. But have I ever really believed that? Oof. You know? Oof. Have you ever really believed that? I can relate. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Uh, so... Oh, your story is so good. I, there, there have been so many things that I personally have related to. Um, I mean, I was never on American Idol. I can't say that. Uh, <laughs> you didn't even, sing at the even, inauguration? Not even Rock. close. I did sing in uh, our campus choir for college. Hey, that's, hey, that is a mile marker. Do you want to know what our, what our, uh, our uniform was? What was the uniform? Um, fire engine red, long-tailed tuxedos. Oh, my God. I'm serious. Really? Yeah. I was in the evangelistic singers at Lee University. Wait, so you grew up really religious? Very. Oh, wow. Just yeah. a fun wow. little tidbit that I figured out. I mean, I, I know you're, I know I'm, this isn't your interview, but like, what was that like? Oh, gosh. I mean, we don't have time for all that. Oh, my but God. But it was, it was all, it was all the things you can imagine. Well, you know, I have a really, one of my best friends is he grew up in a very religious sort of cult like environment and like shaking some of that off is like mm-hmm. a lifelong journey. It is. Yeah. It absolutely is. It's like you, like I was talking about things that creep in my head from childhood, like those things probably still creep in your brain. Sure. And being an addict, like it hits different too. So can I ask you, you know, on that note, I think that's something that's so uh, imperative to anyone's story is uh, spirituality, right? Like mm-hmm. were you, how were you raised? Were you raised in any type of re- religious or spiritual um anything and are you in a place now where you have any relationship to you know a spiritual yeah um not raised religious uh my mom was lutheran but she never the household was definitely not religious at all Mm -hmm. um and my dad catholic my stepmom's catholic um my stepbrother had his first holy communion i remember wanting to be a part of that so bad Mm -hmm. and and i wasn't able to um, which I'm glad for in retrospect, cause I just wanted to be like my brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an adult, like I, I don't subscribe to anything that's super like religious based, but I'm super spiritual about everything. My mom is the same way. Um, we we recently went to Rome 
And we got these, this cross at the Vatican and the St. Christopher um, pendant. And I, I don't, I don't subscribe to a lot of things Bible. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that's just, um, with all due respect, very fictitious and this doesn't make any sense, Mm. but I do believe there is something bigger than us. And I think that that's integral in just who I am as a person to know there's something out there that's bigger than me that created me. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause we're like miraculous individuals. Like I watch a, a lot of the Netflix documentaries of the human body yeah. just to see how everything like goes together. And that is divine. Like there's something about that. That's so you might not say it's Jesus or God or, you know, the Virgin Mary or whatever, but I, but there's no way that we just came together in this moment so beautifully and detailed mm. and it wasn't by the hand of something bigger than us. Yeah. I 100% believe that for sure. And I I think just like the love and generosity and kindness that we innately have as humans, like that is, that's divine as well. Cause we could just be nasty individuals and we are, you Mm -hmm. know, but that love side, like that is, that's like something of the stars. Like, you know, just, yeah, it's, it's magic. So I think one of the most beautiful things you touched on and I agree with so wholeheartedly is that, um, you know, the thought process behind no matter how you believe what you believe, um, that, uh, that the beauty of how our lives are, are the, this world, our organism, just everything has come together. Um, there's, there's so, there's so much connection there and there's so much, um, love Mm -hmm. and you can see it throughout. And, um, I think that's what like, gratitude gives us and perspective gives us oh yeah so yeah i uh, love that word gratitude heck yeah i try um, and think about it a lot a quote. <laughs> i think about it a lot too yeah. i think about it a lot and i and i forgot who said it it was um with gratitude there is an abundance of kindness mm. which i love just being able to say like i'm here in this moment with you alive and healthy mm-hmm. and the weather is gorgeous for once in LA. It's been really, <laughs> we ordered that by the way. We ordered that yeah. mm-hmm. It's great. It's actually a green screen. Yeah. Um, but to be able to say that, like just to enjoy the little moments, which sometimes takes a little bit of work because life gets ahead of you and it gets really quick. Yeah. But to just be like, I'm, I don't think there's a day actually that doesn't go by where I, you, you probably don't know this at all, Derek, but I'll literally be like, I am so grateful to have a roof over my head, to live in West Hollywood where I've always wanted to live Mm -hmm. in a city where the weather is so consistent for the most part. And I have a job like that's just roots, right? That's because I know what it feels like to not have that. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't ever want to go to that place again, especially during the pandemic. It felt like the rug was being ripped out from underneath me. And so I, I know the feeling of like despair. And so when I feel joy, I'm just so grateful for it. Cause I'm like, ah, oh, this could go South. And I know what that feels like. I'm so glad today is not that day. You know, that's a great feeling. Words to live by. <laughs> Try. <laughs> no, I mean, it's the truth. And I like talk about a great sound by that to play over and over and over again. I mean, like that's, those are, yeah, that's some, uh, Sometimes the bare minimum is like the most peaceful thing you know yes sir it really is yeah speaking about the most peaceful peaceful thing and uh finding healing in the brokenness connection all of the things we talked about today um in your story you know i mentioned that i've i've connected so much through yours um 
Yeah, I always like to, my, my favorite question to kind of close out and ask my, my guests is for those people or that person, um, you know, even if, even if it was only, even if it is only one person, if you are watching and listening today and you have connected with David's story and found power and encouragement, this, this entire production was meant for you. Amen. What would you say to them? Oh God, that's such a good question and such a hard question to say to somebody who found encouragement late to this story. Yeah. And they're trying to find like, like they're like, God, I, I connect with the brokenness and I want to find Like I need to, I need, I want to find change. I want to, I want to find the path of healing that yeah. David's on. Oh my gosh. That's so hard. I, cause everyone's story is so unique mm -hmm. and what works for me might not work for you. But I think just at the core, I mean, these are things that I, I think having grace for yourself and being able to stumble and get back up and say, yeah, that happened, but that doesn't define me. Mm. That's really big for me. Like when I look back over the course of my life and stuff, there are things that just stand out that I'm like, eek, mm. you know, that, that wasn't a good look. I shouldn't have moved that way. Mm. But to be able to say, well, I did. And that, that just means that I learned that lesson and I can keep going and I'll make more mistakes and that's totally fine. You know, mm. I might not get this perfect, but I'm going to be one step in the right direction from where I was say yesterday or an hour before. Yeah. You know, and I think if you, if you anyway related to my story, then that's why I'm telling the story to help. You know, I wish, I wished that when I was a little kid, there was a lot of podcasts and a lot of like, so I wish social media was so abundant then because right. I could have probably found myself in other people's interviews or in other people's stories that they're so willing to share now mm -hmm. that weren't so they weren't shared back then. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I just, I would just say grace and patience and don't white knuckle everything. Like, and I, it's, it's not the end of the world. Like I was watching this interview yesterday, Michelle Williams from destiny's child. Mm -hmm. She was on the Angie Mart. Uh, no, she was on the Terrell show. It was, um, you know, the, the Terrell show, uh, he's, he's a guy that um, brings singers on and he'll like throw out like a word and you have the singer has to like sing a song that that word's in. No, but um, you've got me curious. And yeah, now it's I'm really, it's, find a, it. it's a great show. Yeah. He has great singers on there, but he was asking her about her time on Destiny's Child and she was like, well, I was going to sing background for Monica. And then one of her choreographers called me and said Destiny's Child was looking for like a replacement or like a temporary. Mm. She's like, I didn't know what it was, what was going to happen, but I just made peace with whatever happens is supposed to happen. And so she went out there and she auditioned, sang a gospel song and she, she made I me mean, obviously right. She's in Dusty child. But the most important part of that story was, was that she was saying, whenever I have made peace with, before I make a decision, like if I don't rush into it, if I just sit with it for a minute and figure out if I want to do it or not do it, I make peace with it. Mm. It turns out wonderfully. Mm. But whenever I jump into something and haven't made peace with it, it's a catastrophe. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. Like that's because I'm so impulsive mm. or I have been impulsive and I'm working on that. Right. Whenever I jump into something. So my, my advice for anyone that's relating to the story is like, don't do what I did half my life and just, you know, be so impulsive and feel like, you know, time is slipping away from you. Just like breathe, have grace for yourself, have forgiveness. Stop white knuckling it. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
That's beautiful. Um, I think that I love that you're using that term and you're in a different way too. We in AA um, tend to use the term white knuckling it specifically to just the phrase of like cult, you know, uh, you know, being sober and like white, specifically white knuckling sobriety. Yeah. But that white knuckling manifests itself in every area of our lives. Yeah. And you're the first person I've ever heard use that term referring to like a negative whatever no well no i mean it is technically it's it's always used in a negative term but you're using it to describe behaviors of all kinds right like yeah. not willing to like it's the opposite of acceptance white knuckling is letting go of something that maybe you need to let go of and yeah. trying to exert like complete control over yeah. and you know it's it's the ultimate metaphor for like not accepting not yeah. Go, you know, you're like, holy. Yeah. And it, it's, you, we don't have control over anything, right? Just the way it's we an respond illusion. to things. It's, it's <laughs> such an illusion. Yeah, yeah. You can control how you respond to things as much as you can, but, yep. it, but there's no, there's no benefit in like holding on to something so tightly, whether it's a relationship or even with sobriety, like mm -hmm. you white knuckle that and it becomes an obsession. And then maybe your obsession turns to a lot of caffeine or right. a lot of sex or yep. a lot of chocolate. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think there's anything positive about white knuckling. Nope in my experience in life, it's, it's been not great. And it stresses me out. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, all right. We're about out of time. Uh, my last question for you is, gosh, what's your favorite? I had like five last questions for you, like that okay. I was going to pick from. And I, I think the one that I want to go with is just what's, what's your favorite career moment that you look back on and you can't say the Barack Obama one, even though we already know that that one's amazing, but I want to know like, what's your favorite career moment so far that, um, you just cherish so deeply. The first thing that comes to mind in terms of my career was, was really recent. It was a year ago when I became like fully autonomous in my creation mm -hmm. of music. That was amazing. I recorded an entire album in my bedroom and I wrote all the lyrics and produced the music and put it out. And that was, it was called Don't At Me, was the name of the EP. <laughs> Don't At Me. And it had all of my basically stuff from when I was shamed publicly on American Idol for being a former stripper and being gay. Uh -huh. It touched on my mental health. It touched on my vices. It touched on how much I miss my grandma. It, it there was just so much in that album, and it was only only it's only seven songs, mm. but like that whole from top to bottom. And I even did the intro. It's called myself. The intro on the album, and I just pressed. Rec I created the little piano thing, and I pressed record, and I just completely freestyled that intro. And it's about a minute long. And it's like some of my best vocal performance ever. And I, I was just able, the reason why is because I was able to be so free mm. and I didn't care who bought the album. I didn't care if anybody liked it. I just put it out there because it was just, it was, it was, it's, it needed to be a part of my history. Mm. Like when you look back on David Hernandez, when I look back or you look back or whoever looks back to be like, he did that. That was great. And he did that on his own. Like that's, that's cool. Cause I've always been in, I've always been in like, other people's sort of like domain when it comes to music, yes. like use these pronouns, do that, do that. I'll write the song for you, blah, blah, blah. And like, I did the whole damn thing. You did the that. That was thing. cool. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the shiny stuff that was, who was cool, it but. that did that rap at the, the, uh, the award show? Um, you know what I'm talking about where she goes, 
you, uh, Angela Bassett did the thing. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot her name, but the host at that award so show. Great. It was so great. Gosh, I wish I could quote it better. But um, well, anyway. That was, a, that was a nightmare, though. <laughs> that whole thing got so much backlash. Well, it was epic. I, I don't know. I love it, and it won't leave my brain. So anyway, I'm just sitting Speaking here. Angela Bassett. David I love, Hernandez I love, did the thing. David Hernandez oh. did the thing. <laughs> Don't yeah. me. Yeah. Period. 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 That's on period. Right. With a T at the end too. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I don't know. I can't think of a better way to wrap this. I mean, like, gosh, it's I so mean, good. It's, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, there is. Yeah. That was a lot of heavy stuff, but then some nice stuff. Yeah. Some. That's life. Life is heavy. Life will continue lifing no matter what you do. That's right. So just show up and lean into it. That's right. Leaning in and having those tools and continuing to just do do the damn thing. Do the damn thing. Yeah. Just show up. And I'm proud of you. I'm proud of all of you for showing up today because it is no easy feat. That's right. Thanks to each of you who've stuck with us through the episode and for showing up for yourselves. Um, I hope you continue to do that. And I want to thank you, David, for being yeah. our guest on the show today. This has been such a, such a pleasure and honor. And um, I want to remind all of you that it is never absolutely ever too late to start loving yourselves and you're only one decision away from a completely different life this podcast is brought to you by promises behavioral health if you or a loved one are struggling with trauma addiction or mental health we are ready to answer your questions and help you take that next step call our admission center at 888-648-4098 or visit us online at www.promises.com. Our team is ready and waiting to answer the call for help.